So last week, I sent out a tweet on one of the big newsletters in politics, Politico Playbook, teeing up the RNC race. And they basically had paragraphs stacked right next to each other that were contradictory. Um, The first paragraph said there was momentum for Ronna McDaniel's challenger. A lot of signs that 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 race for RNC chair was closing. And then the next paragraph said, based on a conversation with one RNC member who was, who was maybe moving to maybe. And I wanted to start this example here on the podcast, too close to call, because I pointed out the critique of just the pressure to make everything high stakes in journalism. And I feel like the daily political newsletter letter is exacerbating that problem. And I worked for Politico. So just mm-hmm. full disclosure, I, I was in the meat grinder. I get the pressure there to produce high stakes stories almost every day. But just that I, I, I want to share that anecdote because I, and, and get your thoughts. My guest here is Mark Jacob, the former editor of the Chicago Tribune and a former editor, former Metro the, editor, former Met- Metro editor. Yeah. Sorry. I, was, I wasn't, a, wasn't a big editor. I still right, had a right. boss. Still but I was, it was the biggest department at the Tribune. And you also were an editor at the Times, right? The Chicago I was Sun-Times. the Sunday editor at the Sun Times, Chicago Sun Times. Excellent. Yeah. So I was in in daily news uh, journalism in Chicago for about thirty five years. Right. So just back to my anecdote about about you know playbook, all these newsletters, these political newsletters that emanate out of D.C. have to sort of raise the stakes. You'd never write a story that would say this race is basically over. It's not even, it's it's a low stakes race. Right. And I sort of wrote a substack that like the RNC chairman, pers- frankly, anymore doesn't matter as much because we are mm-hmm. personality driven politics. You know, Trump matters, DeSantis matters. The chairman of the Republican National Committee, it could, it could be me or you, in my opinion. Right. But I use that because I feel like one of the problems with political journalism today is, and this is going to sound a little counterintuitive, Frequency, the amount of content we have to produce daily. A lot of political reporters have to do it daily. And the incent- that incentivizes eg- exaggeration of state. Well, David, they have to turn it into a play-by-play. That's the thing. It's, it's got to be, to me, it's a, one of the big problems is it's got to be turned into this kind of, you know, football game in a way. You know, you have to, oh, they're, oh, they're gaining, they're losing, oh, they're... They're growing. They're they're decreasing. They're yeah. you know they 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 made this you know long bomb. No, that's a, you know it's one of those things where everything has to be has to fit into some sort of storytelling narrative. And when when sometimes the story actually is as as you pointed out that the head of the RNC you know who's not super important is very likely to get reelected. And, right. And, and, but, but if you say that, it's like, you know, who cares? Yeah, you stop reading, I guess. But I mean, you're also inaccurate because they didn't have the evidence. Now, if they had evidence that showed, uh, I think her name's Harmeet. I'm going to say it wrong. But yeah, Dylan. Mar- Mar- Dylan. Dylan. Harmeet yeah. Dylan, that she was gaining. Now, if you had 10 new members endorsing her or, they right. just didn't have the evidence. And I would think like an editor would have read that. I was reading it. I would be like the editor. I would have went back to the reporter and said, where's 
where's your evidence for this first graph, right? I mean, like, that's kind of journalism 101. Uh But I guess I'm sympathetic to these people, many of them who I know, who have to churn out this stuff because they need to always raise the stakes. And I I worked at Politico. It you had to raise the stakes for your story. That's how you sort of got cloud and 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 you know ran up the ladder there. And you you also have to, you know, you have to um feed your sources. You have to like you have to well you have to pet your sources. You know, so so if somebody calls you up and gives you something little something, you've got to kind of get it somewhere in your report otherwise they're not going to call you the next time. And, and, you know, so there, be, there becomes this kind of um, tending of sources so that you, you know, so you have content. It's, you know, it's in the business, you know, we would call it like feeding the monster where, you know, every day you got to have something. So you're feeding the monster. You've got it. So, so you just you're grabbing at stuff and trying to figure out how you're going to, you know, fill your column every day. And, and I, I think you're right that the Daily Newsletter, I mean, it's their business. So I understand that that's what they've got to do at Politico. But but so much of it is is hype, and if you also if you if you if you matched what they say one week with what they said two weeks later, you'd find that almost that that a lot of stuff they say doesn't come true. It's right, and, and and the political authors, I will give them credit; they did sort of own up to their mistake over the weekend in their <laughs> another daily newsletter after the vote. It wasn't close. Right, Rana won by more than two to one. Mm-hmm. They basically were lied to by the other campaign, and they basically bought it without much evidence and hyped it up in their newsletter that this was going to be a close race, that it was contested, that it was un, you know, they were unsure of, of, of who the victor would be. And then they sort of own up to like, Hey, but I don't think there really is a penalty anymore. Here's the other issue. And the reason I had have Mark on too close to call, because there's nothing more fun than to than to, than to gripe about the media. And mm-hmm. you do this, you do this pretty well online. I came across your Twitter feed mm-hmm. and you had what basically caught my attention was a couple of weeks back, you outlined 12 dirty secrets in journalism. Right. And many of these resonated with me. Some of them I've written about. Some of them, frankly, I, have, I haven't had the balls to write about. But I just kind of want to go through some of them and why you decided to sort of out these little secrets of, well, of journalism. Let me ask you first, why, why did you decide to roll these out well i mean because i'm out of the business for one thing i mean it's it becomes a lot easier to do when you're not trying to get a daily paycheck but i it's a lot of it is things that i would troubled me when i was in the business and then here i am you know out of business i'm a freelance writer now and 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 so i you know i just see all these things happening and and i guess it all david it was also my feeling that a lot of just regular civilians news consumers don't understand they don't understand the nuances. They don't understand the tricks that are being played on them. Right. And, right. I, and I kind of felt like it might be good to, to illuminate them on some of those. Right. So the first one that you laid out was it's 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 funny one because I think most reporters get this. I uh, mm-hmm. here's your first secret of, of your twelve. When a reporter writes a warm human interest story about a politician, it's often an attempt to soften up the polls to get a better story later. Stories that make polls look good are known in the business as beat sweeteners. Yep. So when we're in, you know, I had a beat and now I cover more general stuff. But when I was a political, I covered Senate governor's races. You try to get in with their chiefs of staff, their comms directors, their campaign managers, 
and they may pitch you on a story and it, that that's sort of the way to, what would you say? A court favor it's with the that? way to get in. I mean, it's the price of admission to some extent. I mean, you know, to where, you, you know, you talk to a, a flack, uh, the PR person for a political candidate or an office holder more likely. And, and they say, well, you know, you really need to write about this, write about how they're helping this or write about this great little thing they're doing here. And, you know, you resist it because there really isn't any angle to it. It's just supposed to make them look good. And, you you know, you go to the to the flack and you want to get answers to real questions. And they're, you know, resisting you. So I think sometimes reporters, I know sometimes reporters will go ahead and write that story. And uh, which we called, uh, at least in my shop, a beat sweetener. And yes. uh just to, in effect, curry favor with the politician. And I'm not saying that the story is wrong or inaccurate in any way. Those beat sweetener is just a kind of a kind of an innocuous feature, mostly. And and it's funny when like when uh, around Christmas time, I used to always tell the reporters, "We're going to need a bunch of stories because everyone's going to be off next week." And they and, and evergreens. And, and right, exactly evergreens. But and that was a time when uh, everyone would pull out their beat sweeteners. Because you know, uh, because they because they knew that they had to write one of those every now and then to, you know, to to get the politicians to play ball and answer the questions that they needed to get asked. But that's why I just think that people need to be a little skeptical of stories that make politicians look too good. I agree. I had an incident where I was covering the 2020 presidential campaign. I was covering the Bloomberg campaign, and I was pitching for an exclusive interview with Bloomberg. After I, you probably recall that he skipped the first primaries, Iowa, New Hampshire, and he was all, right. all going for Super Tuesday. So I was trying to, you know, try to get, you know, the very competitive beat, obviously the presidential race. I was trying to get ahead. Nobody was kind of focused on Bloomberg. So I was like going to try to get the first interview with Bloomberg. So one of his flags calls me up and says, hey, we know you're interested in this. I'm still working on this. I'm just going to try to get you this sit down. But he's doing a speech in Miami. And he's going to call out Bernie on uh, his Israel policy. And, okay, I'm like, okay, can I get a previous speech? Can I look at a speech? Well, it didn't live up to what it was being billed as, but she was trying to get me to write about this speech. And she finally, and I was, we're going back and forth with my editors. My editor's like, I don't know if this is worth it. Maybe we should wait for the whole thing. Because, you know, they they release an excerpt and they want you to tee it up. They want to get They want what they, that's also called, you know, for your listeners, that's called two bites of the apple. Where they want you to, they want you to write uh, about a preview of it, then they want you to write it when it happens. Exactly, they get two bites of the apple. That's exactly what it is. And we're going back and forth. My editor was a little skeptical, and you know, had other things. And and then Bloomberg people come back to me and say, because I kind of say, I don't know if we're going to do this. We might pass. And Bloomberg's people come back to me and say, Hey, well, you, you want that interview? I'm trying to get you this interview. Now it was never explicit, but it was sort of a quid pro quo and i write this on the too close to call Substack. at least hinted at that you should do this story that we want and then we'll produce the interview you want is that ethical to do um i don't if it's a quid pro quo it probably isn't but i mean a lot of things not stated as a quid no see that's the thing i mean it's not stated and you know i mean i didn't think my reporters were unethical when they did them because they Number one, I was asking them to write stories, and they said, "Oh, we got this. I got the story out here that I was going to write eventually. I'll write it now." So, so I'm, just to be clear and, and to set this up real clearly, so that I I don't mislead anyone. So, on on my Twitter, which is Mark Jacob One Six, uh, and 
I, I did this 12 Dirty Little Secrets of Journalism, and they're not all they're not all horrible crimes. In fact, some of them aren't crimes at all. They're not some of them aren't even bad. They're just things that journalists know they do that the public that's consuming their content doesn't know is going on. And so a beet sweetener is a, actually a fairly innocent thing compared to some of the, uh, you know, the dirty little secrets I, I mentioned below. But What's uh, the worst one of the dirty little secrets? Well, I mentioned this. Um, I, I'm very, I really am cautious about unnamed sources. I think that's one of the biggest abuses in journalism is unnamed sources. And, and there are a lot of different ways that that's abused. One is, People don't know this, but uh, sometimes when you're writing a story about a, a politician, the politician, him or herself, might be one of the sources in the story. One this, of the is your, this is number two on your list of yes. 12. Yeah, and they and they don't know that. I mean, readers don't know that. And yet it's a tricky thing because you can't say Joe Jones refused to comment because right. you know Joe Jones as an anonymous source, but you can – Get around well, you can say fight. Joe Jones refused to comment on the record. Yes, or you can right. say Joe Jones or a spokesman for Joe Jones refused to comment, which right. is that's true too. Right. So, so you can you can in effect stay on the line of truth, but frankly mislead your readers in some ways if you, if yeah. you do that. And that's that's one of the abuses. Another abuse of this of the anonymous sources is when you let people give anonymous opinion. I always made sure that my, the very few times we used it and. Honestly, mm. uh, Dave, I think that the Tribune, when I was Metro editor, used it less than almost any other com comparable organization, just because it was not right, in my opinion, to do that a lot. And they do it in Washington all the time. But I said, all right, if you, you can get, uh, use anonymous facts, if you can't get it many other ways, like the, a new uh, road is going to be built. If you know that, you can say that if you can prove, you know, if, if you yeah. can satisfy me. You cannot say... Uh, an anonymous source said that politician Joe Jones is uh, is an idiot. Or you, I mean, or or is okay. You know, so you don't want him talking smack. You don't want him talking no, shit. You don't want him yeah. an anonymous insult. But you see that in, in in the news media all the time. Absolutely, you see it all it, the it's time. It's, probably... it's 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 pot shots from the bushes. You know, it's people hiding in the bushes and taking pot shots. And for the news media to help people do that is to me is really low. Well, but let me challenge you on that because I feel like, and McClatchy struggles this. My employer struggles mm. with with this, and they've they've tightened up the sourcing, which is sometimes frustrating to me as a reporter because I believe that it is very hard to get information, real information, out of anyone in Washington, almost anyone, without going on at least background. They just right. won't even talk to you. Like they are like, "Can we go on back?" I was just on a call earlier. Is this on background? Is this on background? This is a spokesperson for a, com a committee. Can you explain what's on background because not everyone really sure. understands what that is. Good, good point. A background is when you can use the information that is being conveyed, but there is negotiation between the reporter and that source on how you describe them. Right. So I'm not going to say this is coming from Mark Jacob, but right. I'm going to say, Mark, can I say that you are a former editor right. at the Chicago Tribune? And you may say. Well, no, that's too close. I'm like, how about what? Uh, how about a paper in Chicago? And right. you know, and then it's an, and then it's a tug, push right. and pull. Hey, right. I want to get more specific, and right. they are are very right. careful, especially these young staffers that are in their twenties. They think, oh, I'm going to get identified. Now, sometimes they can get identified. Or another thing, David, is that is that you will conduct an interview completely off the record with somebody, and then you will at the end of the interview or in a later phone call have to try to 
talk those things right. back onto the record. Right. Well, that's another. That's a t- kind of a different issue, but yes. yes. Well, yeah, yes. but it's still it's still the case where where you're allowing somebody to to tell you things that you can't use. Well, it's quote approval, and this is a different yeah. issue that I right. wrestle with with a lot. A lot right. of campaigns do this. They're like, hey, we have the conversation, and then what? If you need something on the record which I always do, or you want something, we can come back and we'll go through it. And then sometimes you have this really in-depth conversation. I'll say, sorry, no. So right. all of it's unusable, right. but it's this well, negotiation. You know, the, the, just just a, a little footnote on that is that, I mean, the, the, the campaigns always pull tricks like that to try to manipulate reporters. And there was one case where uh, Rahm Emanuel, when he was, uh, he was doing something, a former mayor of Chicago who was right. like just a champion uh, manipulator of the news media and he um you know we had a story about him and he refused to comment for it for it. he declined to comment he waited until we published the story then he called us and gave us one to give us quotes online for the to update the online story wow. in other words he's, he's he's going to so he's going to use our story as a dry erase board so that he can rewrite it after we've published it you know, well, why? So, why do that? Why is that? Well, because he wanted to know right? what the, he wanted to know what the context would be. Uh, he wanted okay. to know exactly what we had. Right. And he wanted to know what the context would be, and then he would, in effect, because then in effect he was giving us a quote, and he'd say, "Well, you can put that right here in the story." He right. wanted to help us write the story. <laughs> he wanted to be the editor. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and and so so there's that kind of anonymous sourcing um, bothers me. Another thing that I mentioned in this uh, twelve dirty little secrets of journalism is that you really can't trust. Anonymous sources the same way you can trust name sources because name sources you know if you if you get it wrong, I mean that right there's more accountability obviously yes there's yes they lie to you but one one incident I mentioned and I won't say you know what paper newspaper it was or anything this is as far as I'm going to go but I'm editing a story and I and I'm trying to understand there are three different descriptions of people who are anonymous sources in the story and I go to the reporter and I say okay now who is this and who is this and who is this and the reporter says, well, all of those are the same person. They wanted to be described right. differently for different yeah. parts of the of the story. And I said, we can't do that. No. That makes it seem to the reader like you've got three sources. We right, need exactly. One. That is that is that is misleading and that cannot right. be tolerated. And editors have to be careful about that. Right. Um, I always when I'm using anonymous source, I describe that source in the same way. I will ref- if I'm referencing that person the second time in the story, I will say. This, this that the same source or you got to kind right. of reference that it's the same person because yeah, then you're, you're right you're just misleading people you're oh i have four people when really i have one right get back to the anonymous question because i do think okay. this is one of the toughest questions in journalism right is, is, so you you are uncomfortable with allowing it but i deal with staffers let's say a staffer who, who is in their 20s but wants to complain about a boss that's abusive they are never going to go on the record, right? Right. If they're, they're work for a congressperson. This congressperson is shitty or, you know, worse, abusive, mentally abusive, physically abusive, whatever. They're n- most likely never, almost never, maybe 10% chance you get that they're willing to put it on the line with their name. Right. And you kind of have to protect. I think part of a journalism is you want to protect the vulnerable, the most vulnerable. You're supposed to be a, right. cha- a part of the of journalism is you're supposed to lift up the voices that are less powerful. And I think that that's when you kind of have to engage with sources that, that don't want to ruin their career at the outset. Yeah, no, I get all that, but I mean, but that shouldn't be your first step. I mean, you should, you should always try to get people on the, on the record. I was interviewed by somebody a few months ago, a, a journalism student. And as soon as, 
the journalism student calls me and the first thing he said was, uh, can we, can, do you want to go off the record? And I said, wait, just a lesson, <laughs> just advice. Yeah. Don't ever bring up that. Assume it's on the record. Tell them it's on the record. Tell them, you know, you're doing this for a story. Right. And, and make them do all the, you know, the weaseling out. Don't right. help. Don't make it easy for them. Right. Exactly. Don't and, give them the lifeline. But they will. They're most likely going to. The smart ones will, will will maneuver their way out of it. And I right. just had an incident where this was a member of Congress who began speaking on the record very freely and then decided mid-interview to go, he's like, whoa, whoa you're going to have to get a statement from my staff. I can't, I don't want to answer anything more. And I got to be careful about this because then he did go off the record. And then we negotiated on background. But now I have, like, so you have an interview and you have a part of the interview that is on the record. Now, if right. I tie what was on the record to a background person, it's going to be very clear. I could out that person. But do I want to do that? Mm-hmm. I don't really want to burn this person necessarily. But could I? Yeah, you certainly could. You certainly could. Because he starts on and then goes off and then goes on background. You can't do it retroactively. I mean, if they put something on the record, that's on the record. And and you have to agree to not use it. Otherwise, they can't like, you know, and and all of us probably had circumstances where people have done that. Like halfway through the interview, they realize they're getting in trouble and they say, this whole thing's off the record, by the way. No, it's not. It's not. You spoke to me on the record for the last 15 minutes. But now you go back to the your first rule, your first conundrum is whether you're going to blow up a relationship that you right. may need. Right. If this they may this congressperson may never speak to you again. And what if I cover this delegation or I'm assigned to cover the Senate leadership beat and this, you know, and then you burn but, that bridge. Is it worth it? Yeah, but David, that's that's one of the reasons why journalism, especially in Washington, is so bad is because it's, there's so much access journalism it's so much built on, on on that kind of access and the the newsmakers ability to deny access to specific reporters and and that's what causes bad journalism that's what causes uh erroneous stuff that's what causes reporters to not write what they know to be true i i mean it's it's part of the sickness i think so of all of the 12 I mean, you you mentioned, I think you think the, the anonymous source you think is the most egregious of the sins of you of the reliance on anonymous sources. Mm-hmm. Are there any what's the the other most egregious? To well, let's see, of, other, of things, other things, other um, things. Well, when you, in a macro level in Washington these days, you see this. I, I tried to explain that when the news organization is really pounding on one politician or one political party. I mean, writing a lot of negative stories about them. They jump at the chance, if there's something on the other side that happens, they jump at the chance to report it, not only report it, but overhype it. Because that's their way of declaring um, their objectivity. And 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 there is this kind of, in political reporting, there's this desperation of, of reporters to look objective by you know tarring and feathering everyone, that's that's what the the Hillary emails thing was a perfect example of that. There are plenty of other examples like that. But don't you so? But don't you think? I mean, the Hillary email thing we could get in a whole argument about. But you could argue about the severity of the sin. Yeah. But, but she did have a private email. Oh yeah, it was a bad thing. I think it was bad. She but shouldn't have done it. You're supposed to ignore that, right? No, not, not at all. But it's no about way. the proportion of the story. No, but 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 David, look what happened only a couple years later. You had 
all of Trump's kind of nepotism, you know, kids working in the White House were doing the same thing or worse. They were, you know, using private email. They were using sure. secured phones. Sure. They were doing they were doing worse than Hillary did. And was that a big story? No, it wasn't a big you don't, story. Well, because, you don't think that was covered? On, on, I didn't say it wasn't covered. Do you think, was it covered at the top of the New York Times? Well, it, the, the, problem right was the, Trump Times? Had, the problem is Trump had so many daily controversies. Yes, it, was hard what, to, it was hard to give them all equal attention because yes, it was on to the next thing the next day. Yes, it's scandal exhaustion. Yes, no, no what, question. It was That's scandal exhaustion. Was. There's no, So it didn't have the same amount of coverage? No, because the next day he's plotting to fire his attorney general and there's a bigger, yeah. you know what I mean? It's... Mm. It, it, his he, he offered a very unique challenge, I think, to journalism. Yes. But you think it seems like from your tweets, you think journalists are too out, out of their pursuit of objectivity. You think they're tougher or too tough on Democrats? I think they I think they're performatively tough on Democrats. And don't don't get me wrong. Democrats commit scandals. You know, Andrew Cuomo is out of office now for a good reason in my opinion. And I went back, you know, I, I did some writing about this very issue about, you know, who's more uh, corrupt, Republicans or Democrats. And I went back like 30 or 40 years, you know, to Abscam and to the Keating Five, you know, scandal and stuff like that. There were a lot of Democrats in those scandals. You know, those were definitely bipartisan scandals. But when you look at, I don't know if it was all Obama, but for some reason, there was this kind of cleanup done in large portions of the Democratic Party. And again, just to really emphasize, there's still crooked Democratic politicians, no question. But it just seems like today it's overwhelmingly uh, the Republicans were committing corrupt acts. It's not. In fact, the Republican Party has become a magnet for corruption. I mean, if you if you are a corrupt person and you don't care about issues, you're going to the Republican Party. I mean, so you think the evidence shows that Republicans are more corrupt than Democrats. I think overwhelmingly. Yeah. Now today, today they are because of, I mean, because the party doesn't really stand for any issues. It stands for money and power. And so if you're a corrupt person, where are you going to go? You're going to go for the, the, the party that wants to improve healthcare. You're going to go for the party that cares nothing about nothing but money and power. Do you I think, think the answer is pretty obvious? Do you think the Republican inquiry on Hunter Biden and potential influence peddling of the president is a legitimate issue for journalists to probe. I think it's really, yeah, I think it's legitimate to find out if there was any influence peddling with Joe Biden. I think it's, and I think that the, the justice department right now is investigating Hunter Biden and if Hunter Biden committed crimes, man, you should, he should be charged. If he committed crimes, he should go to jail for it. And if, if there's connection between his business dealings with, uh, with his father, that should be exposed. I'm, you know, I'm all for that. I mean, it's, as I say, I mean, there are crooked Democrats too. I just think that, uh, you know, I certainly don't think that people like Jim Jordan are going to be like your, your real fair arbiters of who's, uh, who's committing crimes and who's not. But I think, you know, yeah, it's, it, that's perfectly a legitimate a avenue of discourse. Would you agree uh, that, Would you agree that most of the mainstream media is culturally liberal? You mean personally? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about individual reporters? Yeah, but overall... Oh, no, 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 no. It, I think that's a giant myth. You I don't think, think the, the mainstream media is mostly culturally liberal? Uh, what do you mean culturally? 
Are you talking about like whether they believe in gay rights and stuff? Or what? I mean, yeah, their politics, their personal politics, and how they lead their lives. Wait, here's the distinction that I want to draw. Most media organizations are owned and run at the very top level by right wing or right of center people. Most of the people they employ are New York Times left of left or left of center. Right. And okay. the reason the reason for that is. Most, I mean, most college graduates are left of center, and so, so right. why wouldn't most members of a, you know, of, of a profession where almost everyone's a college graduate be left of center? So yes, yeah, so I think most individual journalists, uh, you know, the people in the trenches, people on the front lines, are are more liberal than conservative. That's true, but 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 what does it mean for the product? Yeah, I'm not That's so sure. That, I don't think that necessarily translates into a liberal pop product at all. Because you look at who uh, who runs it, you know. Look at the Rupert Murdochs. You look at this Chris Licht guy at uh, CNN. You look at you look at various people who are running them. You know, most the majority now, the majority of local you know news outlets are, are owned by hedge funds and private equity funds. I mean, they're not they're not looking to like push liberal causes. They're just looking to make money as long as they can. I right. I, I just I think this that the, the whole liberal media thing is just a giant myth in my opinion okay i want to go to one more of your your points here because i'm a political reporter and this is something that i deal with i think a lot of political reporters deal with this is one of your your dirty secrets it's actually number 11 in mark jacob's feed which you can find it his twitter account is at mark jacob one six when news outlets cite polls commissioned by political campaigns, their partners in spin, if the campaign didn't like the poll results, it wouldn't share the poll. It's possible the campaign did several polls and shared just one. So would you ever allow a reporter to publish an internal campaign poll for public no, consumption? We did not do that when I, when I was uh, you know running the ship at the, on the Metro desk at the Tribune. And there was a lot of pressure including from, you know, superiors of mine to do that. But uh, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't do it because, I mean, come think about it. Number one, it's a poll that, that the, one of the people in the poll who's being polled, you know, is one of the, you do, a, let's say that there's four people running for office and, and one of the four commissions of poll or commissions, you know, who knows how many polls and they get the results. Who knows what one, whether the questions were really fair Number two, who knows? Uh, who knows whether it was really a random sampling? And number three, who knows? Uh, who knows whether they didn't get five polls and pick the one that they liked the best and leak that one? Right. You never have all the information when you get an internal poll. R- right. Rarely, if ever, do you have all everything that went on around their data. Right. But on the other hand, a lot of them would say. I mean, a lot of campaign professionals say we know how to poll better than the than the public media polls, which are often wrong. I think that. It sort of was broken this past uh, cycle. I think the midterms, the polling was mostly a lot better than we'd seen in the past. But campaigns will tell you, you know, media pollsters don't know what they're doing. We're the real, we have the real, we really know how to do it. So yeah, yeah. Accurate picture. So this is why we're feeding it to you. You should believe us, not them. Yeah, right. They're feeding it to you because just to inform the public, not yeah. not because they want <laughs> to improve their position right. or be able to raise more money because they look like a real you know, strong candidate. They're doing it just to inform the public because they want the public to get the real accurate data. They don't care anything about whether they're going to be, uh, you know, get more fun, 
more campaign donations because of it. I think that that I think I don't think anyone believes that. And uh, I think I just think that's a lazy way to go. And it's there was one there's a poll in Chicago. There's a mayor's race going on right now. And, yeah. Yeah. and this, candidate, this candidate who Paul Vallis, who everyone uh, who looked in, in in some early polls. And again, I don't like any polls. I mean, even polls that are done by media organizations, I think, are mo- mostly done to hype up the whole horse race aspect of it, as we talked about earlier. But anyway. So anyway, so this 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 poll comes out, and by Paul, I, I don't know who is by, but it says, shows that Paul Vallis is suddenly rocketed into the lead. The guy who was like maybe third or fourth in some earlier polls never had been in the lead in the poll. He's suddenly in the lead, and this guy uh, at one of the TV stations who loves these internal polls and always runs these internal polls, he takes it and he says, "Oh, this is done by this organization." And uh, they polled 500 people, and Vallis is in the lead. And uh, and they said that it said it was commissioned by, and it names a group that it was commissioned by. And I Google the group. There are no Google hits on the group. The group has no public posture whatsoever. Who's the group? Who the hell knows who the group is? And so and so it's. <laughs> Yeah, you did your due, due diligence there, and you don't. Then you don't run that poll. But yeah, I but think... they did. But they did. But right, but right, the TV right. station did, and then somebody else picked it up and said, well, and, and, yeah. and, and, "TV and, is and, another whole problem with with TV reporters yeah, and what they'll run." Yeah. So I, so I'm just saying that 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 is totally the easy way to to game the system and to just squirt fake polls into the whole uh, conversation. And as I pointed out earlier. There's a real advantage in looking like you're a real player in one of these campaigns at this stage we're at now, which is like, you know, a month out from the election, which is, is, is if someone says, oh, well, this candidate really is rocketing into lead. Maybe I, I didn't want to give him money because I didn't want to waste the money, but now let me give him a contribution. Sure, sure. Yeah, so it's, so, so there are reasons that people do things like this, and it's, it's not to, to inform the public and make uh, the public more understanding of things. Plus, you know, David, when you're talking about polls, you're not talking about issues, mostly. You're mostly talking about right, horses. but who wants to talk about issues? We want the horse race, Mark. Come on now. Well, somebody does. Somebody <laughs> no, I does. Know. You know, but I'm being facetious, but only a little. Yeah, I know, but I mean, uh, and, and but the real problem is that is that I think a lar- large number of people in the news business have decided that issues are boring, and I and I I think that's just a surrender. I think that's just that's ridiculous for them to think that they can't make issues important. Go, you know, go find some. Some old guy who is poor and he's rationing it's tough. his It's his tougher. Insulin. You know, you know the reason why it's tougher. It takes a you lot more blood and sweat. Office. You're right. You're out of the damn office. You're That's right. It. But 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 when 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 they going back to I mean this is a way to button this all up. Going back to that daily newsletter, it is much easier for that reporter to take a poll, put it in the daily news letter, attribute it easily to this campaign, allow people on Twitter to go back and forth, than to take a week. And walk around a city and and talk about the homelessness problem and what right. the different position. That's a lot tougher of a story to pull off. And then the risk is, what if people don't read it? Because I've written some policy stories, and now we can read every measure of traffic. We know how many right. how long the people are on the yes, story, we do. which is the problem. And sometimes I read a policy story and I read the numbers on it, and the editors read the numbers on it, and they're like, right. "This wasn't damn worth it. Go back and right. do the poll." And right. you know, I could go on for another hour with you. On this, but on my metrics. Zoom, my Zoom is going to, uh, my Zoom is going to expire <laughs> in three minutes. So I would, I would, uh, 
encourage all my listeners to go to Mark Jacobs' tw- Twitter feed, which is very good. It's a very good uh, lens on the media. I think a fair critique. Um, if you search the 12 dirty little secrets of journalism under at Mark Jacob one six, is that correct? Yes. Go follow him, read all the dirty secrets of journalism. You'll get more details than here. I also know as, as I also know, I think you are an author of eight books, which yep. one should people pick up if, if oh, you have one to pitch? I don't know. There, um, there's a book, a, a book called Aftershock, which is a uh, photographs in the last year of world war two. Uh, and uh, stories about the uh, the army photographers who took the pictures that I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of. I did that with two colleagues, Richard Cahan and uh, Michael Williams. Aftershock by yeah. Mark Jacob. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Mark, thanks for coming on Too Close to Call. This was fun. Yeah, it was. Very, very much fun. Thank you for having me.